Hello, it's Robert Bathurst here. I was one of the first guests on My Time Capsule, and Mike has asked me to tell you that you can now listen to the podcast ad-free by subscribing to Acast Plus. Details of how to join are in the description of each episode. Mike says it's very reasonably priced. In fact, Mike says it's a bargain. And who am I to disagree? Locked here in his cellar. Anyway, for a small subscription, Acast Plus, My Time Capsule, ad-free. Free. Unlike me. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, and welcome to My Time Capsule. I'm Mike Fenton-Stevens, and in this podcast, I've spoken to loads of different people and asked them all the same question. What five things from your life would you choose to preserve in a time capsule? And amazingly, they answer me. They can pick four things they cherish, but must also pick one thing they loathe and would like to bury in the ground and never have to think about again. My guest in this episode is the comedian and writer Mark Watson, one of the most popular stand-up comedians in the country. Mark has appeared regularly at the Edinburgh Festival and tours the world with his stand-up shows. He's also a guest on a number of panel shows on TV, such as Mock the Week, Would I Lie to You, Never Mind the Buzzcocks, which he also guest-hosted, QI, Argumental, Have I Got News for You, and most recently, Richard Osman's House of Games. He's competed in Taskmaster and appeared on Celebrity Island with Bear Grylls. Now, in my opinion, it's a bad idea grilling anything bare, but uh, he made it to the last episode when he was ordered off the island by the show's doctor after suffering severe chest pains and insomnia. Mark has written several novels. The first, Bullet Points, was published in 2004, and the latest, Contacts, came out in 2020. Also during 2020, he started a YouTube channel with his friends Tim Key and Alex Horn, where they play a game called No More Jockeys. I spoke to Mark via the internet, and we made it all the way to the end without him suffering any chest pains. Both of us had our regular bouts of insomnia, though, obviously. Have fun. You did a few of those in front of car gigs, did you? Yes, quite a lot of those, and um, it was all right. I mean, it went kind of quite well, really. Uh, we're in the process of trying to set more shows like that up, mm. um, but the trouble is the the rules are so changeable and so difficult to follow now. And no one, you know, like I, I normally live 
like all comedians, I've got kind of a year, at least a year, mapped out. And now, almost every week, I wake up and I don't entirely know what's no, happening. No, it's weird. It is really... I mean, I've got things planned, but I don't know if they're going to happen. So odd, isn't it? It's quite a challenging way to live, I think, mentally, from, mm. from you know, from week to week, having to accept that everything that you do might change. I, I, you know, I like... I like a bit more certainty than that in my life, I have to say. <laughs> it seems strange then to have chosen the job of stand-up comedian. Well, you're right, actually. If I wanted a, a job with security, then I, I should have taken a load of different turns about <laughs> yeah. 15 years ago. I know. <laughs> and the same for you, I suppose. Yeah. A lot of what attracts you to the job is the, um, or jobs like ours, is the sense that everybody's different, you never know what's going to happen, you, you know. That's kind of exciting, but all those things have come back to, to bite us. Mm. Mind you, if you have any job at the moment, you don't really know what the future holds, I suppose. No, absolutely not. There must be loads of people sitting there thinking this job is not going to survive. Yeah, loads. So in a way, I should be grateful that at least as a writer or a performer or whatever we are, at least you can make some stuff yourself, I suppose. You're not dependent on the company surviving in the same way. Yeah, quite. And it's, it's too early to say whether there'll be an actual fundamental change, you know, in society or whether this is just a sort of strange nightmare that we have to get out the other end of. Yeah. Well, we'll find out. I suppose the trouble with the whole thing is that things like this are very complicated to manage, aren't they? Mm. And uh, right from the start of it, we've been sort of encouraged to think in a, in a particular way, like keep going and then one day there'll be a solution and we'll beat this. And like winning a war or something like that, yeah, you yeah. know, it, it's, that's the sort of rhetoric. But in reality, it's much more like this will go on for ages and we might get to the end of it or there might be a different problem at the end of it. Yeah. And I think you're right. It will fundamentally change the way that people have to behave. I think this whole idea of social distancing, you're so used to just going and standing in, you know, in a crowd listening to music with people all around you. Yeah, I'm used to that. That's the kind of thing I like. Yeah. A lot of the things I enjoy, like music concerts or football, or you know, I, I, I'm, I'm happy in a big crowd of people crushed together. Yeah. And suddenly that's the uh, most uh, illegal thing you can imagine. <laughs> I like people, basically. I like big groups of people. I suppose this is slightly different for people who are naturally hermit-like anyway. I've got friends like that yeah. who it hasn't affected them too much because they sort of don't like going out. or you know. But I do. I, 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 the idea that... As you say, there's a fundamental shift away from being able to mm. solicit the company of other, the proximity of other humans. That is an enormous thing to live through. It will be pretty interesting to see what the long-term psychological effect is on a, on a generation, mm. I think. Yeah, maybe there'll be a different mentality around the whole generation growing up. If this was, you know, a year of this when you're quite young and you, you would feel differently about all sorts of things. We'll have to see, I suppose. Mm. All right, well, let's move on. Let's move on to what we're here for, really, which is... I'll just uh, snap a light on here, because it's sort okay, of a bit gloomy in here. Uh, I won't be using right. the visuals. Uh, it's more just for me, just actually, yeah, yeah. <laughs> for sort of lift the spirits a bit. Yeah, quite. It's actually a beautiful day here, but... Yeah, uh, we're yeah. just starting to cloud over here. Where are you? I'm in Tunbridge Wells, down in Kent. Ah, very nice. It is yeah. nice, yeah. Yeah, we did one of the driving shows near there, in fact, Hever Castle. Hever Castle, yeah. indeed, I know. It was very nice, actually. I'd never been to Hever Castle before. Very, very nice. I did um, open-air theatre there when I was a young actor. Really? Brilliant fun. Oh, I bet, yeah. We did a whole sort of summer season of almost weekly rep. It was great. Yeah, see, that sounds great fun. It was brilliant just, fun. Again, we, we wouldn't have imagined we'd have to do open-air no. shows. <laughs> no, we, oh, well. Yeah, there we are. All right, so we're going to look at some things from your life. In fact, we're going to go back in time, and we're going to look at some things in your life that you, you treasure enough that you'd want to put into a time capsule. Yeah. Although one of them has to be something that you'd like to get rid of from your life. Yes, that one's quite easy. I mean, no. well, no, I don't know. There's certainly more than one thing that I'd like to see the back of. <laughs> but uh, yeah, that's that's relatively 
easy. Um, as other guests have, have said when I've heard this, choosing the things you want to keep is, is not easy because mm. I think the time capsule exercise is quite interesting because I spend a lot of time thinking about how things pass, how everything is temporary, you know, these things that none of us like to think about, but mm. what you can hang on to, which makes up your life. Yeah. Um, what objects give some sort of permanence to your life? All these questions are in my mind quite a lot. So a time capsule question does really drills down into the, the core of that. What, yes. what can I somehow cling on to <laughs> as everything else in life changes? So I suppose for that reason, one of the things, well, in a way, all of them have, all of the things I'm choosing have are to do with marking something about myself, I suppose, or my interests. Um, the first thing is, this is a fairly typical kind of answer. In fact, uh, I listened to Jimmy Mulville's one. Yeah. Uh, and he had a medal, I think, a military medal that yes. was in the family. I've got a, a medal uh, as well as my first item, but it's um, I said, certainly had to do quite a lot less service to earn it. It's a medal from a marathon. I Just once I ran a marathon, it was uh, the uh, Berlin Marathon. Oh, yeah. And um, I ran it three years ago. Obviously, I didn't uh, win it. <laughs> you, you, you get a medal just for taking part in these things. Mm. In fact, I've got quite a number of cheap medals in my son's bedroom because – uh, you, you tend to get something like that for almost every run, you know, half marathons, 10 Ks. You haven't got to run very far in public before someone <laughs> gives you a medal w- with a sponsor's name on it. Uh, but but this one's special because I've only once once ever run a marathon, and I think I probably only ever will do it that once. Yeah. And I think the reason that it's Im- important to me, uh, I mean, I never look at it or, or touch it or – it's as an object, it, it means almost nothing. But – the period of kind of training for it and stuff was uh, extremely intense. I decided to do it in 2017, so mm. three years ago. I've been on this reality show with Bear Grylls where you go to an island and get essentially tortured, <laughs> d- 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 deprived of everything that makes up your life. Um, and uh, that was a pretty grueling experience. Um, when I came out of it, I had kind of garnered some self-esteem from it. I thought I'm capable of more mm. than I thought I was. And I, I started to ask myself, what you know, what could you do if you dared to? And a marathon was something that was always. Uh, it, I don't really have what you call a bucket list, but it was definitely a nagging ambition that I had. I'd been a runner, like a keen runner, for a while, but it was simply it was in my head that a marathon was just sort of too far, not just too far distance-wise. Although it is, it's a bloody long way. I, yeah. I can confirm. <laughs> it's absurd. It's 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 a mad thing to do. And I, I remember it stuck in my head actually on the morning I was doing it friend of mine texted me from Canada, in fact, and said, she hates running, and said, uh, good luck and everything. <laughs> um, I, she didn't intend for it to be a daunting thing to say, I don't think, but she said something like, good luck and everything, but I, I don't necessarily think that this is something our bodies ought to be asked to do. <laughs> and that was in my head quite a lot over the Twisted <laughs> Mind, because you can, but yeah, it wasn't just that... Feel you know, free to give up when you want it, to. Yeah, I think that was the sentiment of it, but it, it, yeah. I, you know, it rang in my ears as like, what are you doing, you madman? You, you, you're, this is death wish. And, <laughs> but this is the thing, it wasn't just, I mean, I had done, you know, a reasonable amount of running, and plenty of people run a marathon having never done anything before, so it's not as if I thought it was physically beyond me, it was something to do with a psychological barrier. Hmm. I thought that if I, if I tried to train for one event for that long, it would overwhelm me or you know I'd, I'd run out of steam not physically but just mentally because Berlin Marathon's in uh, September and I was training sort of from almost from Christmas time it was an eight or nine month long project just for one you know for one morning really and something about that is quite 
uh, alarming psychologically. So as much as anything, as it got closer, I started thinking, I hope, you know, I, I was aware that the main thing holding, of course, everyone knows that a lot of marathon running and this sort of stuff is psychological anyway. It's about repeatedly telling yourself we can do this. And I've never been, I've never been very good at that. It, not just in running, but in life, I tend to be my own worst enemy, really. Fail to believe in myself. So that's why this marathon run was a sort of seminal event for me, because it was, you know, in a way, it's a completely arbitrary achievement. There's no reason why it is 26 miles, particularly. Uh, no one would mind if you stopped. And even when you talk about it in the future, no one really cares. <laughs> it's a really boring party topic. I never do talk about it, in fact. But in my own head, I know that I set myself a task, stuck to that task for months, overcame all the times I thought, this, hey, I'm not going to do this. And on the day, ran it quite slowly and quite badly and in pain. A lot of the run wasn't pleasurable, but I knew that at the end of it, I would have chalked up something which deep down I never quite thought I'd manage. So the medal for me represents a thing I did in my life which I and again it's not it's exactly that I look back with pride on running like plodding through the streets of Berlin slowly clutching <laughs> my chest but I, I am proud of myself that I dared to have a huge project like that that could go wrong and just made myself keep believing in it yeah it is strange a strange thing to set yourself targets like that yeah and go no I, okay I'm going to do that you know whatever people think of it that's what I'm going to do that's right and a marathon is especially strange because so you know the training involves running five miles maybe then seven miles the next week it's 10 miles as you're doing that yeah. it does enter your head what on earth what am I gaining from this I'm becoming fitter in the short term but even that will wear off because i'm never going to run anywhere ever again <laughs> so yeah but it's funny isn't it because as children as children we do those sort of things to ourselves all the time we're always yeah. setting little targets for ourselves i'm going to hit this ball in the air a hundred times yeah without dropping it and we will go at that for hours and hours and hours yeah, that's right yeah nobody made us make those rules up we just do them and so suddenly taking on something that, that um, somebody else has imposed the rules to is, is, I think, almost a very childlike thing. It's sort of going, OK, fine, that's the parameter. That's what I'm going to do. I agree. And in fact, you're absolutely right. I hadn't thought of that. But my brother and I were always playing games where exactly that. You had to keep the tennis ball. We had to keep it in the air for 10 hits, then 20, then try, again, just trying to push your own boundaries back for absolutely no reason other than the pleasure of challenging yourself. And you're right. That is what running represents for me i don't really care whether i'm faster or slower than anyone else i like the feeling of having set myself a goal and moving steadily towards it it's not what everyone seems to get out of running because there is a real culture of people tweeting how far they've run and how fast and you know there's quite a lot of posturing involved mm -hmm. in everything to do with exercise and stuff but for me it's really the opposite and being in an event like that um we talked a bit probably before you were really recording about uh, what a weird period this mm. is because we aren't able to mix physically with people. I, one of the massive things I enjoyed about it was being on that start line, this buzz of thousands of people that had all prepared for one thing. And in a sense, we'd all entered a uh, sort of a competition, but you know, everybody wanted everyone else to do well. The marathon is a rare example of a, a sporting event where it's sort of win-win basically. Mm. You don't look at other people. You might look at other people and be jealous because they're moving more easily or, whatever but basically you feel a remarkable amount of goodwill towards every single other runner or i do i mean i like athletics yeah. for that reason i like to go and see athletics because it has that sense that when you're in the in the crowd i nearly said <laughs> yes the sports audience when, yeah <laughs> yes when, when it comes to the interval you know we go and get a, yeah, drink. a little tub of ice cream yeah <laughs> so uh, you're in the crowd and if somebody is going to break a record or win when they weren't expected to the whole crowd will get behind Yeah, them. that's right. I really like that. I like the fact that the national standards, you want your person to win. But if, if somebody else 
runs out of their skin and beats them, you're as happy for them as you are for your own people. That's right. There are moments like that in sport which are very satisfying. I think I'm you know, a big sports fan. I, I can be quite kind of, well, very partisan like all fans. But there are these moments. Sometimes you'll see it um, in a snooker when someone is about to make a 147 break and, you know, that yeah. the other player starts off wanting them to miss, obviously. But once it becomes clear they're getting close to this milestone, there's this weird moment where it transcends yeah. the match and the other player is visibly willing them on. Normally they'll clap or hug or something like that if they get there. And just those... Yeah, or, or even in cricket or something. Sometimes you know you, you, you're trying to get a batsman out, but if he gets to 300 or some incredible score, you will see the other team being like, "Well, fair enough." <laughs> and I, I like that. I like those intervals in, in amongst sporting competition where you are reminded that it is bigger than who wins. It's about a collective pursuit, you know. And, and yeah, marathons and you know runs, public runs are great for that because unless you're one of the five fastest people in the world, you, you aren't going to win the event, nor will you be the well, I can say normally be the slowest. I suppose someone has to be the slowest, but that's almost a uh, that's almost an achievement in its own right. Actually, <laughs> yeah. I'm also, they sometimes talk about marathons where there are people still doing it after seven or seven and a half hours, and a van comes round and just basically picks them up and takes them to the line because they need to reopen the roads. So that's what happens in um, London, and I've always found that. Yeah, you know, I don't have any disdain for that sort of uh, competitor at all. I think it's there's something genuinely heroic about. Because to be that slow, you'd have to be near incapable of running the marathon. And yet still, still you've stuck at it for seven hours. It's astonishing. <laughs> I've never run a marathon, but I have. I did go to see a friend run the Paris marathon. Right, yeah. Actually, I wish they'd done Berlin. I love Berlin. It was, the, part, the Paris is Part of the reason I chose it was because I wanted to go to Berlin, actually. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, of course, yeah. It's a fantastic city, but we spent a long time planning the metro route so that we would see the person on the route round the... It's an art in itself, isn't it, uh, following a marathon round on foot? Yeah. We're there at the start, and then where's the next spot? And then we would dash down the... So I felt as if I'd done a marathon <laughs> by the end, because I've been up and down escalators all, all day. I, I remember when my partner tried to follow me around uh, the Great North Run, just a half marathon, but again, it was so complicated <laughs> logistically that she was more tired than me, I think. <laughs> been quicker to run by yeah. your side. <laughs> exactly, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, brilliant. I think it's a great thing to put in there. We will definitely put your medal from the Berlin Marathon in 2017. Thank you. Into the time capsule for safekeeping. So what's your second item? Uh, well, this is a... Um, I suppose I have mixed feelings about this item, as you often do about these things, but um, it's, well, it's a bottle of wine, empty bottle of wine, basically. Mm -hmm. um, there's a specific bottle in the kitchen, which we bought quite near the beginning of the pandemic. It's, uh, it has a rainbow on the label. I don't think it is an official sort of NHS thing, or it just happens that uh, this uh, rainbow-themed bottle of wine fell into my hands at about the same time as everybody was drawing rainbows on their windows and stuff like that. Mm. So it is already quite strongly redolent of that period when the pandemic was starting. We were all kind of rallying yeah. behind the NHS and arguing <laughs> about whether to clap and stuff. <laughs> and so and the, uh, the reason it's... Um, well, I, I don't exactly know how it's made because I'm a person that loves drinking wine, but I do zone out a bit when people are actually talking about the subject. My thing is more just drinking it. Mm. Um, but this wine was made with a kind of blend of 25 different grapes or something. It's some sort of like spectacular feat of wine craft. And it's from Australia. And I bought it in a sort of specialist off-license um, because this, this kind of wine expert who worked there said, you know, said a lot of fancy words, talked about what an advanced wine it was, how much we're going to like it. And sure enough, it wasn't just sales pitch. It was absolutely delicious. Um, and, you know, so I drink a fair bit of wine, but for whatever reason, I think just because of the label, this, this very simple, pretty label with a picture of rainbow, I've, I've kept it. And it's been in the mm. kitchen now for, I suppose, about six months. And in some odd way, 
it symbolizes some sort of hope or something for me because I remember because that original bottle, the drinking of that was right in the, in the heart of the original lockdown when things did seem quite bleak. Mm. Um, so, you know, that specific type of wine is a nice memory for me. I haven't seen it. That's the thing. It was limited edition as well. I should have said that there were, it's one of these things where only 50 bottles of it available. So I can't go out and buy more of that. I think that's partly why we've kept the bottle. That's the only bottle like that I'm going to get. Um, but the, the bigger overarching thing is that I love wine and uh, I am quite defensive of it as a thing. People tend to talk about drinking and booze. obviously a lot of us are drinking more um, in this, mm. these, in these times. And you have to be careful. I, I, I don't advocate kind of excessive drinking or, or using drinking as a crutch or all of these things I have done before. I've had quite a complicated relationship with, with alcohol in, in more difficult times in my life. I've definitely drunk too much and drunk in a kind of more joyless way just to get away from stress and worry. So part of the reason I would have a bottle in my time capsule is because that's a kind of acknowledge that's a, a part of my personality. Um, not, not just boozing, but a tendency to be addicted to things which will bring kind of short-term comfort and stop me from thinking too much. Mm. Uh, but the flip side of all this is I also love drinking. I love the feeling of kind of loosened inhibitions and kind of the warmth of it, the companionship as well. I, I You know, one of the big things I miss about it, about going to the pub and that stuff, it is just being in a group, having, you know, sharing chats and sharing mm-hmm. that. So at this moment, the bottle of wine represents quite a lot of things to me simultaneously, a, a kind of hopefully temporarily lost world of companionship and fun. And, and then also this alcohol what was specifically wine that has been sort of my companion f- for good and ill during my life. And, uh, you know, one of the things that I would like from the time capsule, this imaginary, I assume it's imaginary, you don't go and source these items and actually do it. You'd be digging all the time. Well, we'll find out at the end. Okay. <laughs> um, uh, Although it yeah, was a I, limited edition. I'm not sure I could get hold of one. No, I'd have to send you the actual bottle, I suppose, okay, along with yeah. all the other stuff I'm, I'm, yeah. uh, I'm burying. Um, <laughs> How annoying for you if I turn up on your doorstep tomorrow and say, right, okay, where are they, Mark? Yeah, this wasn't just a symbolic podcast, you realise. This is an actual archaeological exercise. Um, Yeah, I suppose one of the things I'd like from the podcast is for it to give a kind of very rough snapshot of my personality, Mm. you know, to to anyone, uh, to fictitious people who might be looking in 100 years' time. And it's not as if I think that drinking or wine-loving is a kind of essential part of my personality, but nonetheless, it's one of my big vices, and I almost feel like celebrating it because I think that we're very down on vices we can be very puritanical about mm. not just alcohol anything that's fun and a bit bad for you people we, we tend to sort of really there's a lot of self-laceration people say oh i've been so bad i've been so naughty i shouldn't <laughs> have eaten that cake mm. i've had a couple of wines so now i have to, i can't have anything for a week we live in a, a kind of age of self-punishment and self-deprivation a lot of the time i think mm. and i'm constantly reminded ha- of how short life is we lose, you know, public figures or you hear about people whose life's been cut short in the million ways that that can happen. And you do yeah. sort of think to yourself, well, I don't want to poison myself with alcohol, but I'm also not going to, I'm not going to give up life's pleasures when I'm aware of how little life there can be, you know. Yes. I really, do. and I've thought that especially during these, this period, because, you know, it's been a real reminder of how fragile health is. But even without that, I think my position will always be that, you ought to indulge your your pleasures as much as you can without hurting other people mm. because you don't know when they'll be taken away and you don't know how long, how much of them you'll have. Mm. And so that wine bottle to me says, all right, I drank this probably too fast, probably shouldn't have had it, you know, probably will repeat the same mistakes over and over again. But that's sort of what life is, mm. I think. And if you're enjoying it, if, if you are, if you can make yourself happy, 
then that's not to be looked down on. Yes. I had a friend who drank copious amounts of wine throughout his life, but right towards the end of his life, when he fell ill and was receiving medication, medication that made wine impalatable. Right, yeah. Uh, which was very ironic. I have nightmares about that scenario. <laughs> oh, well, I, I think he did, because I do remember him saying to me, this is so annoying, he said, I really should have drunk more wine. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. That's the spirit. That's the attitude. That's the attitude, yeah. I should have got it in while I could. I understand that. I think I'm basically getting in while I can. But at the same time, yeah, I don't want to drink so much that I'm prohibited from doing it by a doctor or something. So it's a tightrope act. But I... <laughs> And also, I, I have absolute respect for people who have given up drinking or never liked it or never mm-hmm. wanted to. I never, I never try and – I'm not one of these people who always go, on, have a drink. You must have a drink. I don't try and force it on other people because people have all sorts of reasons for not drinking. Mm-hmm. But when I meet somebody with uh, healthy appetites – or not even healthy. Healthy is not the word. can be unhealthy. <laughs> yeah. But people with big appetites, whether it's for wine or booze or other kinds or food or just good times, I, I like that in a person, that kind of vigorous, slightly voracious – again, not if it's – greedy in a way that hurts other people but i just think again life's thrills are so transitory the people with a lust for life exactly they're always great however you however you find your pleasures in life you should seize them i think Mm. yeah yeah and that's what that wine bottle is for me it's a reminder of that lovely well let's put it into the time capsule unfortunately not with anything in it no an empty bottle of wine well if it was full, I wouldn't be burying it in the ground. <laughs> You're not an idiot. <laughs> no, I'm not letting the future people enjoy it. <laughs> Although, mind you, I mean, I don't know what the maturation period is for wine optimally, but I imagine if, it, if it's dug up in 100 years, it probably has gone a bit. Uh, yeah, I should think it's probably turned. Although yes. if it's buried in the ground, who knows? I don't know enough. Oh, I don't um, know. But yes. No. They do find those things, don't they? They find them at the bottom of um, shipwrecks and things. They, they sometimes do, and it must be quite a rush to, to have a tiny bit of that, and 50-year-old rum or something. Yeah. Um, but this is the thing. For me, wine is sort of too too much fun to keep hold of. I don't think I'll ever be one of these people who, you know, buy vintage bottles and hang on to them for 10 years and then sell them, because three years in, I'd be looking at it thinking, oh, could I <laughs> could just have a glass I just better be careful i don't want it to go off exactly we yeah. better yeah yeah then you start getting into the area of well there's no point in leaving this much of it is, uh, <laughs> that's what my mum does not with alcohol my mum is not much of a drinker but with with you know a sunday roast or something she's always goading you into eating more by saying well, there's no point in keeping this is a silly amount to leave is it? she starts doing that almost as soon as the meal is served yeah you might if you're eating it you might as well have twice as much of that <laughs> <laughs> right i love your mum <laughs> she's she's one of those um eats almost nothing herself but is constantly on your case to eat more yeah, yeah. <laughs> brilliant okay that's two items we've got into the time capsule mark so w- what's next okay we're going to take a short break here for some adverts we'll be back very soon a lot can happen in the next three years like a chatbot maybe your new best friend but what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? 
for me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction. And free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Welcome back, and thanks for bearing with us. Now, please put your clothes back on. Yes, that's the second time I've done the bear joke. All right, let's get back to talking to the lovely Mark Watson. If you could bear it. No, I'm not saying a word. Uh, well, I mentioned I love sport. I've got quite a large, not actually that large, On many people have larger, but I've got a reasonable sized collection of programmes, football programmes. Oh, right, yeah. Um, not all football, actually, different sports, but largely football. Uh, What's your team? Bristol City, so second tier, you know, middling kind of team. Um but the programme span all sorts of all, all the clubs of the, of the well of the UK really certainly of England and there are I don't know I've got a couple of thousands I suppose they've come with me from house to house mm. in, I don't acquire them I used to go to fairs and collectors shops and stuff and buy them um, uh, these days I, I can't really justify that um, <laughs> but I still do always get a program. if I know someone going to a match I'll ask them to get me one and so on mm. and obviously this is a it's a kind of nerdy sport hobby, but it's a bit more than that. It's not so much about the, um, even the football. What I love about them is that they, you know, some of them are from the 50s, 60s, 70s. And as you open them up, you can see adverts for products or companies that don't exist anymore, yeah. like uh, coach trip operators, or um, often there's, there's, you know, tobacco ads, things oh, that are now ads, absolutely yeah. known to be unhealthy. Even yeah. when I was first going to football in the 80s, there was tobacco sponsorship everywhere. And, everywhere, of all um, sport. Of all sport, no matter how healthy the sport, there'd be there'd be booze and fags all over the branding. Yeah, and um, I, you know, and so I I look at these programs now, and a football program now is like a theatre program, very high quality, glossy, costs several pounds. But a lot of the old ones, again, like theatre programs, are just little pamphlets, poorly yeah. printed little piece of paper. Sometimes they've got writing on it from the original owner. They've written in the score, maybe, or you know, they've amended the the team, uh, the players, stuff like that. But even if not, there'll be little little marks on them where they've been handled by someone. Mm. Basically, they are. You think of a program as a good example of um, ephemera. Many people who buy a, a program at the match don't even hold on to it. They, you know, they they don't know where it is. They shove it somewhere. All this, and yeah. yet, I've got ones that people owned 50, 40, 50 years ago. And um, the more virtual everything gets, the more I treasure the idea of that something so slender can survive. Um, oh yeah, yeah. I, I'm, I'm slightly the same with. I've also got quite a lot of old magazines, and but often it is stuff like advertising uh, materials or postcards. Another good example. I, I love it when people have you know big collections of postcards. There's something about things basically which were designed to only really live for a very very short time, mm. but which we hold on to, which fills me with some sort of some positive feeling about humans. Yeah. The things we the things we choose to hoard and record are very odd sometimes and it's wonderful the internet exists it's great that because of the internet we have an archive of this generation has an archive of everything that's ever happened or been thought or created you know i'm not saying that any of that is a negative it's quite clearly not a negative but there is there's a certain 
glory about a feeble looking piece of paper that has survived since 1965 mm. and is sitting in my attic i think yeah, um, yeah. there sometimes these things actually do represent one person's life as well i yeah. once found uh, in a in an old junk shop a box of old opera programs so right yeah a similar sort of experience this person Again, yeah I, it clearly represented this person going to opera in the 1940s when yeah. they were young and sitting in the cheap seats right yeah you know, through to when you know later in life when they'd obviously become quite successful financially they were going to the first nights of things and they were going to the gala opening and they had a great big program so you could see it's, the regression of their life because that of sort of thing is wonderful i think yeah. a person's life told through you know bus tickets and you sometimes see plays with this you know a conceit or, or books about it but it is fascinating mm. um there's a book which i think about a lot called the postcard century where somebody uh i think his name was tom phillips just just had a, a collection of you know postcards all the way through the 20th century uh and it's just a i've probably got it on the shelf somewhere here's a huge big glossy book with postcards you know from all the way from the, from the war onwards through the 60s and everything um there are some constants, like every year there's one uh, of Piccadilly Circus and one of, I think, Times Square. So you can see the, the visual evolution of those places. But obviously what's fascinating about them is not the pictures, it's the writing on the back of them. It's these tiny messages, yeah. some of them incomprehensible. And, and that idea, again, that there's also, similarly, there's a, a book called Postcards from the Past and a Twitter account, in fact, called Postcards from the Past, which is the same sort of thing, basically. Mm. A guy with a large collection of postcards and he just tweets the postcard, which will be from Bognor or you know, anywhere, and then just transcribes the now meaningless sentences that are on the back of it. And again, there's something, you know, we all come and go so quickly and we do our best to, I suppose, again, I suppose what, what I like about it is compared with diaries or something is, mm. as you say, these things were not meant to, to market or map out a life. Those opera programs weren't consciously bought to try and, you know, prove or illustrate or chronicle something. No. They just accumulate over your life. I'm fascinated by things which are telling of a life like that. I suppose yes. without without because even with a diary, you curate it, you decide what you would like posterity to see. Mm. But a big collection or a set of ephemera or you know, those things are, are much more tell us much more, I think. Yes, what was interesting about these things, you're absolutely right, because without a doubt certain things had happened in this man's life that changed his behavior so the early programs which is interesting because they were the, the the cheap ones but most of them were signed so clearly as a young right. man he'd stood at the stage door to get the signature of his idols but then as time went on just one or two of them are but then they're sort of you know dedicated to dear robert you know, right, so he's yeah. sort of obviously meeting them in you know backstage or whatever. Very, very interesting. Yeah, yeah that journey is fascinating. I mm. think, and, and you know, all of us as humans leave behind uh, this paper trail of stuff that tells us tells other people who we were and tells us who we were. I suppose it must be very weird if you late in your life to look back at the stuff that you owned at one time mm. and work out what out of it was important and what wasn't. Yeah. And sometimes, of course, you've got rid of all the things that you thought weren't important and they turn out to be important. That's right. And th actually, this does bring me on to my other item. Okay, well, we'll definitely put that into the time capsule. Yes, thank you. So let's move on to the next one. Well, this, I mean, I, I, I'm reluctant to part with this, really. Uh, so hopefully you don't, again, you, hopefully you don't come and collect these items immediately. Um, <laughs> I can't but, get uh, all those programmes. No, I, no, I'll just give you one. <laughs> I've got a bad back. Yeah, there's several fairly heavy boxes, I'm afraid. <laughs> Even moving house with them was a hassle. Getting them under the ground is going to be a nightmare. I'll just, you, you can have one of the old ones. Okay. Um, 
well, very simply, this is this is uh, my phone. Um, I was thinking about what I wanted. It was my 40th birthday in February, and I had a really nice night and party just before it became impossible to to do that kind of thing. Basically, um, probably most people have got a memory of a, like a last party or get together of some kind before it all went to hell. But mine has this extra significance in my head because it was my 40th, so it already felt like a landmark. And it was, you know, not everybody that I loved was there. You, you sort of, you can never get that, I, I suppose. But a lot of people were. A lot of important people to me were under one roof, and I felt very, I suppose, loved and valued, and also just very proud in a way that, despite a lot of ups and downs, my life had reached a point where I could, on the on the day of my fortieth birthday, look around and say, "This, you know, I'm very broadly speaking, very happy with everything." Yeah. Uh, not everything is perfect, of course, but you know we're here. We are. This is a good landmark. Uh, yeah, and then within a couple of months, because of the tearing down of all the certainties, most of what made up our life, I, it means that I look back with even more already nostalgia for that mm. event, which was only eight or nine months ago, because because we can't quite get back to that now. And so I was thinking this morning when I thought about doing this, I thought, you know, how can I encapsulate? Because ba- what I basically want to take is that night and put that in the capsule. Yeah. But then I thought, well, not only are there photos of it on my phone, but the the phone numbers of those loved ones are on my phone. There are messages relating to the birthday on there. <laughs> uh, and, I st- and also yeah, the music that I play, all of it. And it's easy to forget how much of your life is contained within your, your phone. Mm. But in a way, if you have a smartphone, it itself is a, a mini. You're walking around with a time capsule, basically. <laughs> so I, I feel like uh, and most of us would not want people to take our phone in the future and examine the contents for all sorts of reasons. Uh, you know, it's, a, it's very personal having that much of your brain stored in one place. Mm. But I do think, cause you know, I've already said that I love the permanence of an old, uh, an old program or, like a, you know, a medal. So I am quite old fashioned in some ways, but also I do think it's extraordinary and exciting that you can carry something around that's, well, I'm holding it up, but this is audio. Anyway, you, you can all picture a phone. <laughs> yeah. Something the size of a phone can contain as much information about us as it can is an amazing thing which no previous no, no humans have ever had that until no. No, and the things you, you know, don't quite realize at the time i mean i basically got an app that was there to record my mileage when i was driving yeah and then i, I realized after a while this was logging everywhere i'd been really <laughs> precisely that's right i mean every street i'd been to all those women i'm having an affair with yes that's <laughs> difficult to pull off an affair if you don't want your phone to know about it isn't it <laughs> That's the thing. I, you know, once again, it's this thing about what we want to leave behind or what we want to project versus what we actually are leaving. It is interesting, isn't it? Your phone mm. knows lots about you, which you're not even aware it knows. Yeah. You can see this when it starts to do predictive texting and stuff, and it often quite accurately forecasts what might be on your on your mind. <laughs> and I always find that quite unnerving because, again, it, it makes you wonder how how much it's listening to you. And I think you know, a, a lot of people talk about the sinister aspects of this about the the fact that our phones are potentially being used to harvest data and monitor us in ways we're not comfortable with. And that's probably all true. Mm-hmm. But, you know, on another level, your phone is a fascinating companion to you in a way. It knows where you, what you're up to. It, yes. it Peculiarly, it sort of understands your thought processes to some extent, however, artificially. So even though all of us have a mixed relationship with our phone, a bittersweet relationship with the phones, we perhaps all wish we didn't have to be tied to the gadgets so much, all that. I do think sometimes it's worth stopping and thinking about the positives, which are that mm. everybody that has one of these tiny devices has more of themselves assembled in one easy-to-find place than, again, than any... I, 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 <laughs> I can never get past the thought that, that this has never happened before, that only no. people 
only people living post about 2000 have had this privilege. It's mm. And actually, if you're worried about the amount of information that is going on there that people may be looking at or storing or what have you, the problem is that carries the assumption that you're important enough to matter. Yeah, I, I often think that. <laughs> Quite often when, when there's some sort of um, app, like the government introduced that app to track and trace, for example, and, yeah. and anytime there's a, any sort of app that, or, or any sort of attempt to gather data even for quite clearly useful public purposes like the mm-hmm. like the stemming of a pandemic you'll always get people going they're listening to us they know everything you do yeah. and yeah most normal people think they can if they want <laughs> yeah fine i don't care if they know i went to the shops they're gonna have a very boring time looking through my text but yeah <laughs> and you're right there is this kind of all of us need to feel important and in some people that manifests in this kind of delusion that you're constantly again i understand where it comes from it's not a delusion that our data is being harvested and sold and all the rest of it. But the idea that minute to minute your messages or your purchases are, are that interesting to that many people mm. is it stems from the sort of solipsism which we're all guilty of, I suppose. All of us think, well, I'm the main I'm the main guy in this in this world. You have to think that. <laughs> yeah. You can't get through life without taking yourself seriously. But yeah, if you take yourself so seriously that you'd rather throw your phone under a combine harvester than have anyone see what because you know, imagine if mobile phones existed that had been in the possession of famous people that lived in, if Dickens had had a mobile or something like that, you know, we'd, of course we have their letters we have, but again, letters and diaries and everything that used to be left by a person, they were pretty deliberate about and, and they could burn it. They could destroy it. I think it's fascinating that the the, the famous people of this era, whatever steps they take to try and remove that paper trail, they will be survived by an incredible amount of information Mm. about themselves. Yes. I mean, think how easy the world would be if we had the mobile phone of Jesus Christ and Mohammed. Well, I mean, that's a great example. My God, we'd have a, quite a lot fewer arguments if we had if we mm. had Jesus's mobile. We could cut to the chase pretty quickly in terms of what happened. Yeah, <laughs> Gethsemane, never been there. <laughs> exactly. I, his app in those final few days with a really told an interesting story. Yeah, right, just there we are. So, well, I think it's well worth it, and even just for the sake of having the the record of your fortieth uh, birthday. What a fantastic thing. Exactly. Okay, that's fantastic. So your mobile phone rightly goes into the time capsule. Yeah. Again, I, 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 you know, it's a bit of a blow to lose it, but hopefully I can get a replacement one. (laughs) It's more important, you know, posterity demands it. Somebody somewhere will have cloned it. It's all right. Oh, probably. There's probably several of them already. (laughs) (laughs) So we've done four things. Yeah. So uh, we need one thing that you want to get rid of, which you say is easy to come up with. Well, relatively easy because just looking around, this again is is a good example of um, just the stuff that kind of sticks to you and some of it is very valuable and some of it's not. And a good example of what's not is, now, if I talk about this, it's going to sound as if I have some legal reason for wanting to destroy this stuff and I absolutely don't. But <laughs> I still have years worth of bank doc- accounts, you know, statements, mm-hmm. tax-related stuff, financial literature of one type or the other, which even though we've all moved largely online, I still do keep this stuff like a lot of people. Mm. And sometimes I open the cupboard and look at it all, all of these now completely irrelevant documents and <laughs> printouts of things that I had to once present for success and all things that the bank sent me, which are, you know, I felt like I had to keep, but ultimately have no value, have no importance to the world or to even me. And, you know, I've spent a lot of time in my life worrying about money Partly, will I have enough? Can I manage? Um, mm. And and also just the mechanics of it. Am I paying my tax on time? Am I messing up this tax return? And often when you hear about people's deathbed regrets and stuff like that, one of the things I'll say is I, I shouldn't have got so caught up with money, material stuff. I was going to be all right. Why didn't I just... And I, I often feel like that about myself. I'm never going to be 
particularly wealthy, I don't think, certainly not if uh, live comedy continues to not exist. But I <laughs> probably won't be desperately poor either, at least hopefully not. No. So I'm going to, like most people, live between those two extremes. So basically, mm-hmm. I don't think that money deserves to occupy as much of my brain as it often does. And as I say, that's, rep- that's encapsulated for me by the sheer amount of paperwork that is in hand. And I'd love, to, I'd love that to be gone. I, mm-hmm. Occasionally, I do shred some of these documents or just throw them in the recycling or whatever, um, and it's a massive feeling of liberation. So, yeah, um, basically, if we could bury just an enormous stash of now totally irrelevant financial paperwork, bury it deep enough that no one is taking the bank. But some of, the, some of them are so old that even the bank details don't really apply. You know, it's, it's all – and so much of this stuff stacks up. And when you're moving house or whatever, whenever you have occasion to examine your possessions, it's amazing how much – how many papers there are how much mm. do you know and as we've said some of this is fascinating because one day it will build up a picture of you but some of it just has no value other than some chamber of your mind is still dwelling on this rubbish so yeah i think spiritually it would be a really good exercise for me to bury all of my sort of 2013 bank statements and just <laughs> never ever think about any of it again no and you're allowed to as well that's the point you're allowed to get rid of, i think it's six years isn't it you, oh yeah you keep six uh, years of account but i'm like you i have cupboards full of things from you know 1985 yeah what's the point it's not even as if i know where most of it is it's not as if i've got a good system i, I i've just kept <laughs> loads of stuff here and there you know at least if i had a sort of everything since the 90s nicely filed and that would be weird but you could sort of see the satisfaction in it but it's not even like that i've just got this kind of assortment of rubbish and uh, most of it would have been thrown away years ago were it not for this nagging paranoia mm-hmm. about money and banks and taxes and all these things that you worry about. So, yeah, I feel like symbolically getting rid of a load of that would represent moving on from my needlessly neurotic relationship with money and stuff. Well, I'll clearly, obviously, I'll, like my mother always did, I'll cut all the addresses off and shred them. And uh, yeah, yeah, obviously, if you would act with some discretion. Regarding, <laughs> but, but as I've said, <laughs> the stupid thing is half of them are so old that the addresses aren't even you know there's there's no data there that anyone could even use against me and yet still you can't quite get rid (laughs) well i'll get rid of it for you great fantastic it's going into the time capsule deep down i might even because you don't care i might burn it and just put the ashes in there yeah that'd be even better yeah i'd love to see that bonfire a tax bonfire (laughs) accountancy bonfire what a lovely phrase oh brilliant we'll invite all the people from your 40th birthday party round again that'd be great get them all standing around socially distanced around the bonfire and we can all (laughs) raise a glass of that wine i'll I'll source a bottle of that wine somehow from whatever genius it is in south australia that's right and we'll enjoy watching this plume of bank related smoke rising from the garden (laughs) and then afterwards you can run a marathon yeah, <laughs> yeah. Maybe I might give it a night's sleep first. Yeah, maybe just a trip to Berlin. There we yeah. are. Lovely, Mark. It's been absolutely fantastic to talk to you. Thank you so much. Been really, really interesting and lovely to meet you. Oh, it's been a pleasure. Well, it's a very nice series, and I look forward to meeting the field where all of these incredible capsules are one day. Me too. Because <laughs> uh, at the moment they're all in my garage. Yeah, I was going to say you must be looking looking to get rid of all these. The more episodes you do, the more the more crap you're accumulating. Yeah, <laughs> it's time to look into at least buying a storage unit. I think. Yeah, I think you're right. Thanks a lot, Michael. You have been listening to My Time Capsule with me, Mike Fenton-Stevens, and my guest, Mark Watson. If you've enjoyed listening, then please feel free to rate the podcast and maybe leave a review. And you can subscribe to it on Acast or wherever you usually get your podcasts. 
You can follow me and my time capsule on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. This has been a cast-off production produced by John Fenton Stevens. The music is by Pass the Peas Music and can be heard in full on Spotify if you search for My Time Capsule Theme Tune. Catchy title. And that's just about it. You know, I really enjoyed talking to Mark. In fact, we chatted for hours, so we did have to cut some of it. For example, at one point, Mark asked me who my favourite fictional detective was, and I said, well, that's elementary, my dear Watson. It's Marple, obviously. See you soon. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.